please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. To Ephesians chapter 2. This morning we want to read verses 1 through verse 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Please follow along as I read. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me ask that we pray once more together. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, Breathe new life into our willing souls. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew our hearts and make us whole. Cause your word to come alive in us. Give us faith for what we cannot see. Give us passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in us. Amen. We've been in a series on Ephesians for the past several weeks, and now we come into chapter 2, having completed chapter 1. And I promised early on in the series that I would review some of the major themes of the book that I want to sort of continually keep before our eyes and before our minds as we study the book of Ephesians. Because one of our goals in coming to the book of Ephesians is not only that we would uh, be in God's Word, hearing it preached, hearing it taught, but that we would understand this book better throughout our time uh, in the book of Ephesians. And so I want to remind you sort of the, the thesis statement or the theme that we're kind of working with in the book of Ephesians. What is the general message of this book? Well, I've stated it this way in one phrase, that God has begun and is perfecting a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ. God has begun and is perfecting a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ. Now, this work comprehends the salvation of individuals, people like us. It comprehends the formation of a new community, the church, and it comprehends the establishment of a new moral order, ethics by which we're to live as God's people. I'd like to review with you briefly, in, in addition to that kind of general, general message statement for the book, uh, we summarize five major themes that we're going to see in the book of Ephesians. We've actually completed one of those themes, and we're going to begin a new theme today as we study this book. But I want to go ahead and keep these before you as we're going through the book of Ephesians. The first major theme in the book is that God is carrying out his eternal purpose in Christ. And that's more or less what we saw in chapter 1, that there's been this great work of God that began before the foundations of the world, that he began in Christ, uh, that he elected various souls to salvation, and then in time he came and worked in them and saved them. And this was all part of God's glorious purpose in Christ that began before the world began. And I encourage each of you Christians to think that, that if you are in Christ... That before the foundations of the world, God had you in mind. His thoughts were towards you, and his thoughts towards you were love, which is a glorious thing to meditate upon. 
The second major theme of the book is that God is making individual people new by graciously calling them and saving them. It's not just that God has this marvelous plan that began before the foundations of the world, but that in time, he actually is drawing individual people into a relationship with him through their union with Christ. And we're going to see that uh, primarily in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're going to start that section today, and it's this theme of God actually coming to people in time and saving them and making them new by his grace. The third major theme of the book is that God is forming a new community in Christ. Uh, Aren't you thankful that when God saves you, when God saves a person, uh, he doesn't just leave them on their own with a Bible and says, okay, go figure this out. But he actually draws us into a community of people who are saved just like us. We call that community the church. We have the glorious privilege of being a real part of brothers and sisters in the faith who love us and are invested in our spiritual well-being and want to see us grow in the faith and make it safely to heaven. It's one of my favorite things about being a Christian, that I am actually yoked to brothers and sisters in the church who are more truly my brothers and sisters in Christ than even my physical family. It's a wonderful thing. Well, God is doing this in Christ, and this is all over the book of Ephesians. The fourth major theme of the book is that God is establishing in Christ a new moral order by which Christians are to live. It's summarized in a theme like this. Let him who stole steal no longer. Uh, Whatever was true of your past life, Uh, Whatever uh, uh, you lived in, in the futility of your minds and in sin and in darkness, that's all different now. Now you're in Christ, and if you're in Christ, there's this new moral order by which we're to live. There are now new precepts and promises that we're to live in, and our lives are to look markedly different than they did before we were found in Christ. And then the fifth and final theme that we're highlighting is that God has drafted believers into spiritual warfare in Christ in which believers wage war along Christ, alongside Christ against satanic powers and evil forces in the spiritual realm. We've talked about this a number of times, but that in Ephesus there was this great awareness of the spirit realm, that there were evil forces at work in the world, that there were satanic forces, dark forces at work in the world. In fact, many of those who were saved in the Ephesian context were formerly people who practiced dark arts and black magic, and there was this great awareness of the spiritual realm. Well, Paul does not tell those people, you know, you're a Christian now, all this silliness about spiritual forces, that's not really a thing. Just look at the Bible, process it, live by it, look to the guidebook, which is the scriptures. No, he actually affirms this awareness of the spiritual realm and says, yes, actually, you are now at war alongside Christ to get spiritual forces in the heavenly places. There is a spirit realm. And we don't wage war, brothers and sisters, against armies and authorities and physical powers. We wage war against satanic forces in the spiritual realm. Well, this morning we come to Ephesians chapter 2. And it really is that second theme we want to zero in on. That theme of Christ actually coming and making individual people new by his grace. So let me ask that we read again the verses that we'll consider this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I hope everyone that is here at this service will actually come next week, or at least listen to the sermon next week, because this week we have all the unpleasant stuff. 
if, you, if you were not an expository preacher, I don't think you would choose to preach on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I find the truths of this text really unpleasant uh, and in some ways depressing and discouraging. Well, I'm really just going to leave us in this text this morning, so I hope that you'll come next week when we can celebrate the glories of what God has done in Christ. But this morning we want to talk about human nature and what the Bible has to say about it. And I've outlined the text along these lines, three points. We have in this text, first of all, the charge, the charge. Second of all, the evidence. And then thirdly, the sentence. So it's kind of courtroom language. There's a charge that's made against all of mankind. There's evidence that is presented to support the charge. And then a sentence is passed, and we'll take these points in turn. First of all, consider with me the charge. It's found in verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Nine words that summarize the Bible's teaching on human nature. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, a few weeks ago, I made reference to something that's known as the progressive movement. The progressive movement in America. The progressive movement in America was the late 19th and early 20th century movement that contributed largely to a more optimistic view of human nature than that of the decades that preceded it. American progressivism was based largely on the idea of human progress. It maintained that if men and women were placed in the right environment, given access to the best education, and allowed the appropriate measure of civil rights, the human race could thrive and prosper. However, in the last 50 years, the optimism of progressivism has essentially been abandoned in most scholarly circles. The progressive experiment, along with its optimistic view of human nature that undergirds its presuppositions, has been shown to be discordant with reality. It's been shown to be false. It's been shown to be falsely optimistic. There has been almost no indication of progress in human nature or human behavior in the last 100 years. And I mentioned this maybe last week or the week before, that actually the homicide rate in America, for example, is significantly higher now than it was 100 years ago. The suicide rate is significantly higher than it was in this country 100 years ago. I heard recently that the life expectancy rate in America has actually begun to decrease over the last couple of years, due in large measure to alcoholism, drug overdosages, and suicides. More Americans than ever, especially younger Americans, suffer from extreme stress, anxiety, and depression more than at any point in our nation's history. Sure, we have more money better technology and access to better health care, but human nature hasn't changed. There were more people killed in war in the 20th century than in all other centuries recorded in human history. We in America, in the last hundred years, have seen some of the greatest wars in our history. World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Some of you grew up under the ever-present threat of nuclear war. Uh, My generation has always lived under the threat of global terrorism. Uh, Here's another litmus test for the gains we've made in human progress. I'll just leave this to your judgment. Have the virtue and integrity of our leaders improved or declined over the last 250 years? There is arguably more division in our nation, in our country, along political lines and ethnic lines than at any point in American history. All of this... And yet some maintain the fiction that human nature is basically good and that human behavior is marked by progress. 
Now, one interesting area where I think we see this fiction played out is in the relative disappearance of the word sin from modern vocabulary. Just think about that, for example. When's the last time, outside of a church, outside of a Christian setting, did you hear people actually talk about and confront the idea of sin in a person? John Stott takes this up in his his book that I heartily commend to you. It's called The Cross of Christ. It's one of those Christian classics that I really do believe every Christian should read. In his book, The Cross of Christ, he explores this idea a little bit. He writes this, The very word sin has in recent years dropped from most people's vocabulary. It belongs to traditional religious phraseology, which at least in the increasingly secularized West, is now declared by many to be meaningless. Perhaps it is a deep-seated reluctance to face up to the gravity of sin that has led to its omission from the vocabulary of many of our contemporaries. That's what Stott writes. One acute observer of the human condition who has noticed the disappearance of the word is the American psychiatrist Carl Menninger. He has written about it in his book, Whatever Became of Sin. That's the title of the book. Describing the malaise of Western society, its general mood of gloom and doom, he adds that, quote, one misses any mention of sin. It was a word once in everyone's mind, but it is now rarely, if ever, heard. Does that mean, he asks, that no sin is involved in our troubles? Has no one committed any sins? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? Inquiring into the causes of sin's disappearance, Menninger notes first that many former sins have become crimes. So that responsibility for dealing with them has passed from church to state and from priest to policeman. While others have dissipated into sickness, or at least into symptoms of sickness, so that in their case, punishment has been replaced by treatment. A third convenient device called, quote, collective irresponsibility has enabled us to transfer the blame for some of our deviant behavior from ourselves as individuals to society as a whole, or to one of its many groupings. Dr. Menninger goes on to plead not only for the reinstatement of the word sin in our vocabulary, but also for a recognition of the reality which the word expresses. Sin cannot be dismissed as merely a cultural taboo or social blunder. It must be taken seriously. Sin, listen to this, is an implicitly aggressive quality, a ruthlessness, a hurting, a breaking away from God and the rest of humanity, a partial alienation or act of rebellion. Sin has a willful, defiant, or disloyal quality. Someone is defied or offended or hurt. He says to ignore this would be dishonest. I think that last sentence is actually really prophetic. I believe with John Stott and Carl Menninger that society's prevailing portrayal of human nature and sin is fundamentally dishonest. It's ignoring the facts. I've quoted several times our second president, John Adams, his famous statement, facts are stubborn things. Whatever may be the dictates of our passions... I forget the rest, but he basically says, uh, we cannot escape the facts. We have to confront them. We have to live in them. And when I hear a progressive agenda, the idea that human nature is basically good, marked by progress, able to thrive and prosper, when I look at the facts, when I look at the human race, I see that that picture of human nature is fundamentally dishonest. And frankly, just in my own experience, it's not like this for every Christian, this is one of the main reasons I am a Christian. Because when I look at the Bible... I see a frank, and honest, and accurate portrayal of human nature. I see a real picture of what I see in the world. When I look at the Bible, I say, yeah, that looks right. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Sure looks like that to me. 
And though cultural figures, leaders, and professors, and teachers might be selling me something else, it's fundamentally dishonest when we consider the facts. The Bible's picture of what human nature is, is so profoundly accurate, so profoundly true. And I'll just say one of the reasons we know it's true is because the picture of human nature uh, it's, it's not as though Christians become these whitewashed uh, people who never struggle with sin. I see my own experience as a Christian struggling to overcome sin reflected in the Bible. The Bible is profoundly realistic. God's people are not even free from sin. We have nine words in Ephesians chapter 1. An accurate and honest and clear picture of human nature. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. John Stott writes, against this somber background of our world today, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 stands out in striking relevance. This is the charge, that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't alive. We're not morally neutral. We're not a blank slate. We're not born partially dead, or as Miracle Max would even say, mostly dead. Okay? <laughs> we're, not, we're not half dead. We're not uh, uh, you know, alive enough that we could maybe, maybe come awake, come alive. No, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And in fact, the word that Paul uses, necros, the scriptural word for death, actually means literal death. It's not a figure of speech here. We are spiritually dead, done, no pulse, no lifeline. With no ability to come alive, with no ability to produce life in ourselves, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So I thought of an illustration maybe our our children could appreciate. I don't know if if kids really do this much these days. Maybe you children haven't had this experience. But you kids know what a a graveyard is. Know what a graveyard is? Your parents told you about a graveyard or maybe you've seen a graveyard. It's usually a a big field where people who die are buried. And you'll see these maybe these stones that are upright or maybe they're lying on the floor and it might have some inscription on it about the person. Here lies John Brown, and it has the years that John Brown lived, and maybe something nice that the gravestone says about him. That's, that's a graveyard, okay? Uh, I, grew, or I grew up in a house in South Carolina in my teenage years. We actually lived on the grounds of what had formerly been a Methodist church hundreds of years ago, and there was a graveyard on our property. We found that out after we bought the house. No one told us that. And we're off in the woods, and all of a sudden we see these gravestones. There was a Methodist graveyard on our property. And I just tell you kids, you should ask Mr. Zach sometime about the day he tried to do a good deed and clean off those gravestones and the mayhem that ensued. But you could just ask him that some other time. But, uh, you know, if, if we went up to those, imagine I took you back to that house that I grew up in, and we went over to that graveyard. And here we see a grave, and it says, Here lies John Brown, a great man beloved by all his friends. And suppose I said to you, why don't, why don't, you, why don't you wake him up? Why don't you knock on the, on the gravestone and see if John Brown will come out? And if he'll come and maybe go to McDonald's with us to get uh, some ice cream or something like that. Let's go ahead and ask John Brown if he'll just wake up, come with us to McDonald's. We'd like to get to know him a little bit. Well, that would be, that would be silly, right? That would be crazy. Why? Because dead people don't rise up out of the grave and go to McDonald's to get ice cream with you. That's just a general rule. That's why you come to church to learn things like that, okay? <laughs> dead people don't come out of the grave and go to McDonald's. They don't do it. Why? Because they're dead. They're buried six feet under the ground. They don't have the power to get up and walk around and do things. Well, listen, kids, the Bible says that about your heart when you're born into the world. If you're outside of Christ, it's as though you're dead. It's as though you're buried six feet under the ground, and you you can't do anything to bring life in yourself. The Bible teaches that the only way we could be saved, the only way we could have life, is if God gives it to us. But if we're outside of Christ, 
The message of the Bible is that it's, it's like we're dead. And you could think of those other words, our trespasses and sins. If we buried a coffin, perhaps we throw dirt on top of it, okay? It's like your sins are like that dirt falling on top of your grave. You're buried in trespasses and sins. And the only way you get out of it is to look to Christ. Now, maybe a more adult analogy. I don't know if any of the children have ever seen someone dead before. And maybe, maybe you adults have never seen a dead body before. I know that we have uh, medical staff here, and, and perhaps that's quite routine for you, okay? Uh, I've seen a dead body a few times, loved ones that have died in just different situations that I've been in. It's um, a horribly unnatural thing, and I'm not trying to be gruesome or crude or anything like that. But I want to encourage you adults to think, when you see a dead body, you should think. One thing that should come to mind is this is the Bible's picture of the human soul outside of Christ. This is the Bible's picture of the human soul outside of Christ. Dead, lifeless, no ability to to breathe and to walk around and to do anything. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins outside of Christ. This is the charge. This is the picture of human nature that Paul gives to us. And this charge, that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, was not unique to the Ephesians. Uh, we talked about all the ways in which the Ephesians probably lived, these, these really licentious lives. Some of them were caught up in drunkenness and in orgies, and some were going down to visit temple prostitutes, and they were caught up in black magic. And you may say, those are such decadent expressions of wickedness and evil in the world. But actually, Paul says, we're all born this way. It's not just some particular class of really evil people, but those who struggle with pride, those who struggle with uh, a lack of patience, those who struggle with gossip and slander, they might look clean on the outside. They might have some of those, what Jerry Bridges calls, respectable sins, but they too are dead in their trespasses and sins. Because Paul says in verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. I'll quote John Stott again. He says this, Paul is not giving us a portrait of some particularly decadent tribe or degraded segment of society or even of the extremely corrupt paganism of his own day. No, this is the biblical diagnosis of fallen man in fallen society everywhere. This is the charge, brothers and sisters, leveled at all men and women outside of Christ. You're dead in your trespasses and your sins. Now, secondly, consider with me the evidence. Paul now presents some evidence to support this charge. He doesn't just leave the, the, the statement naked and bald on the surface. He actually provides some supporting evidence that he expects will resonate in the minds of his readers. You're saying we're dead in our trespasses and sins? What, what evidence would you put forth to prove that? Well, I see basically three lines of argumentation, three lines of evidence that Paul wants to admit in the record. And they go along these lines. You hear us refer sometimes to the world, the flesh, the devil. I got the order a little different. The world... The devil, the flesh. There's evidence with respect to the world and the way they lived in the world, evidence with respect to Satan, and evidence with respect to the flesh. First of all, the world. Please look again at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. It's that phrase in verse 2 I want to seize upon. You walked according to the course of this world. The phrase is literally according to the age of this world. According to the age of this world or the spirit of this world. P.T. O'Brien writes this, the previous lifestyle of the readers has been dominated by this present evil age in this world. Rather than being focused on heaven and the life of the age to come, their behavior has been determined by the powerful influence of society's attitudes, habits, and preferences which were alien to God and his standards. 
John Stott writes this, the words age and world express a whole social value system which is alien to God. It permeates, indeed dominates non-Christian society and holds people in captivity. You know this, right? The world, the world has a, a way about it, a course, a spirit. It has a pull, okay? The world is seeking to pull at the hearts of men and women. It is a prevailing uh, a set of attitudes and ethics and morals and standards and values. And the world is actually pushing that on people who are born into it. There is a prevailing way in which people think. There is a prevailing force that the Bible calls the world. Well, what's the application for us? We should recognize, brothers and sisters, that the world is a force. The world has a pull. And sometimes Christians act as though they are immune to the influence of the world. That we're just immune, that we're just impervious. Listen, don't be naive. We have in our vision statement that we ought to love God, one another, and the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's wonderful. We ought to love the world because the world is lost. The world needs Christ. We don't mean by that statement, the world is just great. It's wonderful. Now, there's a whole other strand of truth in the scriptures. We're told to love, not the world. The world is seen to ensnare and entrap people. And these people in Ephesus apparently were ensnared and entrapped in the world's way of thinking, in the course of the age of this world, the spirit of this world. It dominated their lives. And they thought in worldly ways, and they behaved in worldly ways, and they said worldly things, and they were... Ephesians is telling us we're in some sense captive and enslaved to the world's way of thinking. Well, you who are outside of Christ should think about that. In what ways is your life shown to be enslaved to just the prevailing attitudes, the prevailing way the world wants you to think? But this morning, I'm actually particularly um, eager for Christians to understand that the world actually does want your soul and want your heart. The world is trying to entrap you and ensnare you. The Bible teaches that. We're to shun the world, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Those things are after you. And let's not be naive. Let's not pretend we're immune and impervious. We ought to love the world, serve the world, reach out to the world. But there's evil in the world. And it has a pull. And we would do well to consider that as we live our lives. But now secondly, the second bit of evidence that Paul wants to admit in the record, it is the evidence of Satan, of the devil. Look at verse 2 again. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Apparently in their pre-Christian life, the Ephesians were under the power and dominion of Satan, who is here called the prince of the power of the air. He's ruling the power of the air. Now what is the power of the air? How do you understand that phrase? Well, it's not as though he's just flying around through the air, okay? Satan is said to be the prince of the power of the air. The power of the air is is this collection of evil forces, spiritual forces, demonic forces, and Satan reigns over those forces. He's the prince of the power of the air. And Paul is telling us apparently these Ephesians, before they were in Christ, before they came to Christ, were subject to his power. They were in some sense under his dominion, under his rule, under the prince of the power of the air. He's referred to as the spirit that is now working in the sons of of disobedience. The spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Now what's the application? I'm aware that what I'm about to say could be mocked by people outside of the Christian faith. It's not a very popular thing to say, but I think if we read the Bible and understand it appropriately, we're forced to believe this. The fact is, uh, Satan 
does work in some people in extraordinary ways. The Bible teaches there is such a thing as demon possession. And that didn't stop with the days of Christ. He confronted people who were possessed by demons. That still happens today. And we think we live in this enlightened age that we know better. That sort of thing is impossible. That's not what the Bible teaches. Satan is at work in some people in extraordinary ways. But what is perhaps a more disturbing truth, what I think is the truth of this text, is that the Bible does teach that Satan is at work in every single person outside of Christ. Do you believe that? Is there another way to understand what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2? There is a sense in which Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, there is a sense in which Satan is operative in every single person outside of Christ. I think we need to feel the gravity of that. Does that change the way moms and dads, the way you pray for your children who don't know the Lord? I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. If your children are outside of Christ, there's a sense in which Satan is at work in them. Does that inform the way you pray for your kids? You have a lost relative, a lost person you're trying to reach. You should have this awareness. There's a spiritual war going on here. It's not just that I need to convince this person with the right arguments, that this person is just a blank slate, and if I could put forth the most convincing presentation, they'll just believe. Listen, Satan is working in the hearts of the lost. That's the plain teaching of the Bible. Satan is the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And I think we would be helped. I think it would be good for us if we had this mindset. When we interact with those who are lost, we should recognize Satan wants the souls of these individuals. Satan is working to ensnare and entrap the souls of these individuals. We're fighting a spiritual warfare. He is the prince of the power of the air. And through Christ, we have to fight him. That should inform the way we pray. That should inform the way we evangelize. That should inform the way we talk about spiritual things. We should feel the gravity of this truth. Satan is working in the hearts of those who are outside of Christ. Well, finally, in this text, they're referred to as the sons of disobedience. What does that phrase mean? Basically means that they are so consumed in their nature, in their person, in their being by disobedience that they could actually assign this title, the sons of disobedience. Satan is working in those who are characterized in their very nature by disobedience to God. But now thirdly and finally, the third bit of evidence that's admitted into the record here under this second heading, the evidence. We've seen that the world is admitted, the devil and his work is admitted, now the flesh. Look with me at verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Not only had these Ephesians gone after the ways of the world, not only had they been ensnared by Satan and known something of his dominion in their lives, apparently they had lived out their lives in lusts and licentiousness. Here are some of the things scholars think were going on in Ephesus at the time. There were drunkenness, orgies, fornication, gluttony, idolatry, theft, greed, hatred of fellow men. Now do you think that's any different from what we see in our culture today, in the world today. Pornography, drug abuse, alcoholism, divorce, abortion, deception, hatred, abuse, slander, gossip, all manner of sexual sin and bitterness. That's all over. Our world is riddled with those types of sins. I don't think our context is all that different from the Ephesian context. What could be said of these Ephesians before they came to Christ could be said of us before we came to Christ. 
we lived in the lusts of our flesh. We indulged our sinful desires. And therefore we were under the just judgment of God. We had lived in the ways of the world. We had lived in the ways of the flesh. And we loved our sin. John 3.19 says this, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. No one can escape the indictment of that text. I mean, isn't that true of you before you came to Christ? We loved darkness rather than light. We indulged our flesh. We indulged our sin. We lived according to the way of this world. Well, one application here that we should see is that living in the lust of the flesh is understood to be antithetical to the way Christians ought to live. If you're living in sin, if you're walking in sin, that's not how you learned Christ. That's not the way those who have been united to Him, those who have been adopted by the Father, ought to live. Paul says this is what characterized you before you were saved. Living in your sin, going after the lusts of the world, living in the lusts of the flesh. That was your former life. And presumably they're to live in a different way now. But now thirdly and finally, thirdly and finally, we've seen the charge that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We've seen secondly the evidence of the world, the devil, and the flesh. But now thirdly, the sentence, the sentence. And it comes to us in verse 3. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now you may look at that and say, I don't really see a sentence there. What are you talking about? I don't see like this judgment being passed on anybody. They were children of wrath. We might understand that to mean something like this, that they were children of wrath in the sense that they were sons of disobedience. They were just so marked by wrath, so full of wrath. But that's not the way the expression should be understood. They're children of wrath in the sense that they are destined for judgment and condemnation. It's like that phrase, sons of perdition, sons of judgment. They were children of wrath. Their destiny was to be judged, to be condemned by God. That's what it means to be dead in your sin, to live according to the course of the world, to live in the lust of the flesh, to be under the dominion of Satan. The sentence is this. You are condemned under the wrath of God. You are a child of wrath. That is the just sentence for everyone born outside of Christ, born in sin. It's not that these individuals were full of wrath. It's that they will be subject to wrath, specifically God's wrath, and they are destined for judgment. Well, this is the Bible's picture of human nature. This is the Bible's teaching on all those who are born in sin. It is that they are destined for judgment, destined to hell, unless God intervenes and does something. Well, next week we're going to consider what it is that God does. We're going to consider the optimism that is found in what Christ is willing to do for sinners. But I just want to leave this here with us today. That this is the state of men and women outside of Christ. They're born in sin. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're not able to produce life. We can't produce life. They're not half dead. They're not mostly dead. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And they will perish if Christ does not intervene. This is the Bible's picture of human nature. And if I'm honest, it's not what I would choose to believe. I find this picture heartbreaking. I find it hard to consider. I find it hard to hold to. Frankly, I find it hard to preach. Because it's not a popular perspective. But it's an honest and true and accurate perspective of what human nature is. And I just put that to your uh, consciences. Is this what you see in the world? Is this the picture of human nature? That men and women are dead in their trespasses and sins. 
I want to challenge you, anyone who teaches you that human nature is fundamentally good is teaching you something that is not only wrong, it's fundamentally dishonest in face of the facts. The Bible is completely honest. It's strikingly honest. It doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't hide the bad stuff. This is the state of men and women without hope in the world and without God. And it's only when we realize that that we could find hope in Christ and what he's willing to do for sinners. I hope you kids, I hope you adults study the presidents of the United States. I hope that you can name many, if not all of them. Okay? And if you study American history, you might know that many presidents have made all sorts of campaign promises. All sorts of promises about the human race, about America, about their platform. Some of you may know the name Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 32nd president of the United States. He promised to the American people a new deal. His cousin Theodore Roosevelt before him promised America a square deal. Harry Truman after him promised a fair deal. Woodrow Wilson promised a new freedom. A new freedom. Doesn't that sound wonderful? John F. Kennedy spoke of a new frontier. Lyndon Baines Johnson spoke of a great society. A great society. So much optimism. Let me ask you, after all of these promises, all these agendas, all these programs, is human nature and human behavior better off? Have there been great gains in human progress despite these optimistic agendas? Or has the progressive movement failed? Are we realizing that human nature is fundamentally bad? Human nature is fundamentally against God. Human nature is marked by death in trespasses and sins. Now someone here might say, Alex, you are so, such a downer, so pessimistic. Listen, my pessimism regarding human nature is only rivaled by my optimism regarding Christ. Amen. We're in a bad place outside of Christ. We're all in this sinful mess together. But there is great optimism in the Christian message. What God can do through the gospel in the life of a man or a woman... You can be made a new creation in Christ Jesus. How's that for optimism? How's that for a campaign slogan? Christ promises a new kingdom and he commands us to seek it by repentance and faith. I want to be part of that agenda. I can believe in that platform. That the gospel can change my heart and raise me to life and get rid of this death and this sickness and this unrest that's in there that I can't wash out, that I can't get rid of. Yeah, I'll believe in that. If I could have Christ, if I could have the new man, if I could have my sins washed away, and I could be made a new creature in Christ and raised together with Him, I want that. Well, I hold out that optimism to you today. That's not fiction. That's not a vain hope. That's not something that I just really wish I could preach to you. That's something the Bible teaches. Human nature is dead in trespasses and sins. We're all going after the course of this world. Men and women outside of Christ are under the dominion of Satan and living in the lust of their flesh. But in Christ, we can be made new. So I encourage you, this new creation, this new kingdom that Christ offers, seek it by repentance and faith. You're invited to be part of it. You can have the campaign promises of the new kingdom that you can be a new creature in Christ Jesus through repentance and faith. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, some of us can remember what it was like to be dead in our trespasses and sins. And thankfully, many of us here can remember 
when we were made new through Christ. Lord, for some of us here, this, this picture of what humanity is outside of Christ is gloriously in the past tense. It's something that is now in the rear view mirror. But for some of us, it represents the present. For some of us, we are still caught in the ways of the world, the lust of the flesh, and the dominion of Satan. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would deliver each one of us here who are in that place, outside of that, that lostness, and that you would put each one in Christ and raise us alive together with him. Father, we thank you that God has worked in Christ to intervene and to change things. That there is boundless optimism and hope in the Christian message for what can happen in a man or a woman or a boy's or a girl's heart. There is boundless optimism for what Christ can do for a sinner if they will call out in repentance and faith. And Lord, for many of us here, our hope is secure. And we have come into the new kingdom and into the new creation. And we pray that you would do that for each one here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to close our service by singing.